From the EPR Creation Studio, this is the Unconquered Podcast. I'm Jason Staples. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing the best of website development and internet marketing for an affordable price. So in this episode, I'm going to follow up on some things that have emerged, looking at looking a little closer at the, the Louisville game and uh, looking forward to the North Carolina game, just considering what where Florida State stands. This is not going to be the North Carolina preview. I'll do that a little bit later in the week. I should also mention that, uh, as many of you know, maybe most of you know, uh, I also do a lot of North Carolina coverage for Inside Carolina on the 24-7 Sports Network. And uh, one of the things that I, I do every week for them is uh, we, we do a game plan podcast that is a preview of the week's game. And uh, for those of you who are interested in hearing Hearing that, I suggest that you go over to the Inside Carolina feed. Uh, all of the podcasts for this week will be of interest for people uh, from the Florida State side as well as from the UNC side. But that one in particular, uh, you'll kind of get to hear what I'm saying from the North Carolina side as opposed to thinking about things from the Florida State side, which, of course, will be in the preview episode that I post on this feed. On uh, It'll either post on Thursday, roughly midday, or Friday, depending on how uh, all that goes. But like I said, this is going to be this episode is going to be a bit more general and looking also uh, more backwards than forwards in terms of uh, performance this this year and also thinking about some other elements at this point. So first thing I want to highlight is you go back and look at this Louisville game and you know, in my opinion, the offensive staff has has been earning their paychecks uh, with with what they with the hand that they have been dealt. It is um, the the lack of of overall talent and also health on the offensive side has really. I mean, you're talking about a major major obstacle, a series of obstacles, and I mean, <laughs> basically, the situation at this point is that you have you have at the quarterback position you have below average passers at quarterback, you have two guys who are banged up and are uh, and can't really be used as battering rams in the running game to to compensate for that. I mean Jordan Travis is a really good runner, but do you really want him to to be running all the time right now with some of the concerns that you have health-wise there? Probably not. So you you have to run him judiciously and make sure that he's protecting himself. And when you're calling stuff, you have to make sure he's not going to take a beating in the pocket. If Milton's in, do you you can't you can't run him all the time, and he's limited in in that regard. Then you pair that with a substandard offensive line that is banged up, making them far less effective than they would be if they were healthy. Frankly, if they were healthy, this offensive line could probably be average to maybe even above average if they were all in their normal positions and completely healthy. But if you look at it. They're not that. You had to move your left tackle to right tackle because he basically has been playing on guts because he he can't move his feet really. He, he couldn't he couldn't set to the direction of the of the ankle injury. So you just put him on the other side and and basically hope he doesn't further injure it while he really can't move over there. You've got a left tackle who's maybe the healthiest guy. That, that you've got, but he's also a little gimpy and, you know, not quite as effective in that regard. 
You've got uh, your your left guard Gibbons. He he hurt he hurt his ankle against uh, against Notre Dame, and he's still feeling that a little bit. And then you've got uh, the center position where your starting center has been out most of the year, and he came back against Syracuse and did look better, but he's already a bit undersized and has you know he's he's fighting back to be able to play at all. You've got a right guard who's still recovering from offseason uh, surgery and can. I mean, if you if you actually watched him walk to the sideline after a timeout this last week, you could see him limping as he was walking to the sideline. So there's your there's your right guard. So there's basically no one healthy on the offensive line. I mean, granted, yeah, nobody is completely healthy at this point of any season. But I mean, they're unusually banged up, and they're already again not the most talented group in the country in that respect, and certainly not the most. Uh, uh, combination of talent and experience. So in, in, in the right positions that you'd want them. So you've got that, then you pair that at, well, at least, you know, maybe you've got a, a bell cow wide receiver that can make a difference outside. And you say, Nope, <laughs> you're pretty average at wide receiver, maybe even a little below average in that regard for, for, uh, for ACC level. And then you've got good, but not great running backs. And your task is to find ways to score with that group. Now, what's your identity going to be? How are you going to, if you're, if you're the offensive staff, how are you going, what's your identity going to be? If I say, there's your, there's what you've got. You say, well, run, we're going to be a running, running football team. We've got good running backs. The one place where we can, we can hang our hat. We're just going to run the football. But the problem is you can't pound it because you just can't block well enough for that to be your base. When teams know you're going to run the ball, you're not doing real well. I mean, yeah, those guys have a, a good yards per carry average. But one of the reasons that they've managed to do that is because of how they've used them. They haven't just tried to line up and pound it. Because when you look at Florida State's numbers in basically pounded situations and on run on clear rundowns, that sort of thing, they're not real good. When running against an eight-man box... They are 118th nationally in success rate in getting the amount of yardage that they need to get or that would be expected for that particular down and distance. When running into a seven-man box, which is just as relevant because they're they're typically running three receiver packages or you know they've got a little bit more spread personnel on the field. Seven-man boxes, 105th. This is a team that cannot pound the ball. So in order to be able to run it, they've basically got to use smoke and mirrors and a lot of creativity in the running game to be able to get those backs in position where they can actually do what they do. And that's one of the reasons why you see those bigger runs at different points in the second half is because they figured out ways to scheme up based on some of the things that they're setting up with all sorts of other stuff. And so you look at this and you say, okay, so you can't pound it. Can't just go to the strength of your running backs there and rely on that because you don't have the other supplemental group that you need to to have that be a strength in the in the offensive line. So you say, okay, well, throw the quick game, throw quick game. But the problem is your receivers don't get enough separation and your quarterbacks aren't accurate enough to throw the quick game reliably. So if you're going to be throwing a bunch of slants, if you're going to be throwing a bunch of hitches and things like that, you need to be able to pitch and catch. But if you can't pitch and catch reliably and if guys are not consistently getting separation there, that's out. 
And the, the thing is, the quick passing game, when teams know they can, they can basically load up against your run, the problem is that if you're going to try to supplement that with the quick passing game, you're not actually challenging teams to get guys away from the line of scrimmage. You can stop most of the quick game stuff by having your guys within 10, 10 yards of the line of scrimmage already. So that doesn't actually loosen things up for your running game. So that's a problem. In order to really loosen things up, you need to be able to play action pass downfield. But the problem is you haven't been able to pass protect. So teams can load the box. And then when you don't throw, they're just going to the quarterback through your through your play action. Great. So what they've done is they've taken a basically a page out of the the old Baylor playbook in some sense. And they're basically using the wide screen game to run triple option and win with numbers out there. And and I thought that was a good a good strategy against Syracuse. Now against a team with better perimeter defenders, that's going to be harder because they're going to get guys on the ground quicker. But basically they said we can't block enough in the box, but we we can use our tight ends and big receivers to block some of those guys on the edge and get running backs in space and essentially ISO or or zone type plays on the outside in one-on-one situations where the, where you're forcing a guy to tackle in space and maybe you get some, get some uh, advantageous looks out there. That's what they're doing. And you spread that out enough and now you get a few guys out of the box and maybe you can run it. That's what they did. And I, I think that, I mean, that's a pretty good strategy. And the benefit of that is that you can set up some shot plays where you have some low risk opportunities for cheap scores, which is really what you need. That, that's basically what they're strategizing here. So you run those quick screens until basically they start jumping them enough that you slip them out, that you slip guys out and you get touchdowns. That's the idea. And they actually got one of those in the, in, at the end of the uh, first half for the score. That's how they scored uh, at the end of the first half. And to me, that's as good as you can do right now with what you've got. Now, the problem is you play against a team like North Carolina this week. Carolina's got a pair of really good corners. And they're strong. They've got some guys who can who can tackle in the open field in the secondary and and uh, a little bit less less so at linebacker. But they've got some guys that can tackle out there, and they can probably match up reasonably well with what you're doing there. So you might have to have a few other wrinkles this week. And I'm looking at it, and knowing what I showed against Syracuse, I'm going, okay, what do I have left in the in the bag this week? And it's not not a ton. So, you know, you hope you can get some some things out of that and and maybe make a few more plays downfield. I mean, the one thing Travis does do for reasonably well as a passer is he can throw a pretty good deep ball, but he's got to be more consistent with it. And they've got to hit those or they're not going to be able to score points against better defenses. That's just where they're at. Now, on the other side of the ball, and this segment brought to you by Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, the best in the business. Out there, tell them you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. If you have any needs in uh, the real estate arena in the greater Jacksonville area, you're not going to do any better than working with Lewis. So on the defensive side, to me, the defensive staff is really where they're still not getting enough out of their players. I will say, though, that again, when you have as much talent on the sideline as they have, I mean, this last week, they didn't have their, their two backups at defensive tackle, both on the sideline. So Briggs and Ray, and Briggs is out for the season. You had your best corner out, 
Jay's banged up. You have your your starting safety out in Akeem Dent, who's now listed as as the second uh, second string on the uh, at that spot. But really, he's your most talented safety. You've got your third corner out in Mako Dotson. So, I mean, you're basically in a position where a, a lot of your a lot of the guys you're depending on are out. So that much that much is absolutely true. The the difference is that at least on defense you have one strength and it's an obvious strength. You've got a legitimate strength with your defensive line starters. Those guys can actually cause problems and you need to get stops when they're on the field. Now they managed to do a lot of that against against Syracuse. We talked about that that they were able to get a lot of three and outs. But they've got to find ways to manufacture some stuff when those guys aren't on the field. And that's the thing. They've got to they've got to find ways of of maximizing what they're getting out of the fact that they do have some strengths. But again, there's limited depth. I mean, when 0, 91, 11, and 4, so that's Lovett, Cooper, Johnson, and Keir Thomas, those guys, when those guys were on the, on the, on the sideline this last week, that's when they gave up a lot of plays. And you know, they gave up a couple when they were on the field. But... And, and I think it's really, it really hurts them. I mean, it really hurts that Briggs is out. I mean, that's, that's one that's going to sting for a while. But you've got a legitimate strength there, and you've got to be able to maximize that. You've got some players. You've got some decent talent in the secondary. The problem is, again, much of it has not bought in enough to, to play as they, as they should. And some of, it ha- some of those guys are banged up. And when you have a bunch of backups on the field who haven't necessarily played as much together... You end up with some miscommunications, especially when you got freshmen out there. You end up with some busts and things like that, like on uh, on the one where you got a guy that came just completely wide open. Knowles just was in the wrong defense. You got a true freshman miscommunication. He's playing a different defense than everybody else. You get a guy running wide open. That's that's what it is. You can't have those miscommunications. So, to me. You know, this defense, if you've got a, a, a healthier Travis J, if you've got Akeem Dent out there, if you've got Dotson getting some some reps out there periodically as as guys get uh, get tired, if you've got Kevin Knowles who got banged up in this game, if you've got him out there, you can be a pretty decent defense. But it's hard when all of those guys, and actually Renardo Green too, is also banged up, when all those guys are banged up. And to me, maybe the most disappointing thing about this season is that Demory Tate hasn't taken the steps needed to to be out on the field because he's he might be your most talented corner. I mean, you can argue for Travis J there, but but Tate might be. I mean, he's right in the same talent pool, talent class, and he hasn't taken the steps needed to be on the field. I mean, that's to me one of the most disappointing things about this season so far. And again, you've got to find ways to get these guys to buy in, to get the technique down, to communicate, to do the things necessary to to be a quality defense. And again, you've got some talented pieces. You've just got to find ways to make it work. Now, I will say it was pretty evident this week that Sidney Williams is is he needs to be on the field defensively because he's he's simply more steady. He's he's more reliable back there than some of those other alternatives. I mean, they're, they are significantly worse with him on the sideline. You could see, again, he doesn't run as well as, as some past Florida State safeties. Uh, but, you know, Gant is a hitter, but isn't as reliable. I mean, they've got to, they've got to have 
steady play from the safety position, and Sidney Williams right now is giving them some of that. Uh, I also was it was a little concerning to watch Amari and Cooper go back and watch that Garrett Schrader run, and and you watch Cooper go to accelerate, and you say, oh, that's concerning because you, the question is, how well can he run? How what what kind of speed does he have at the corner position? Because he just got run away from by a quarterback and by a 6'4", 230-pound quarterback. So, you know, that was concerning to see. But, you know, it's a it, obviously quarterback was getting up to speed. Cooper had to basically start from uh, closer to zero. But if you go back and watch that play, the other thing that concerns me defensively is you had guys that were kind of trotting in pursuit. They were not running to the football, and that's been a problem defensively all year that you just you have to have that backside pursuit. Yeah, you're 25 yards away and yeah, it looks like Johnson might make that play in the open field, but you've got to be sprinting to your spot. I mean, this team really they need to do pursuit drills until they puke to basically get this right to sprint to the ball, to get to where they're they're consistently getting hats to the ball because they they've not been consistent enough with that at different points this year. And it's led to some major problems. It's led to some of the biggest plays of the season. I mean, it cost them one of the, it cost them a game and we haven't even gotten to the weakest spot on defense really to talk about that, which is the linebacker position where the, maybe the, the biggest surprise of the season has been that the strongest linebacker, the, the best linebacker has been Kalen Deloach, who's been one of the bright spots on defense this year. Now, there are times where he's not physical enough and he'll get run over at times. I mean, he got trucked on the uh, on the goal line uh, by Schrader at one point, but he's come back and he's he's fought and he's been certainly a, a more consistent coverage backer than anybody else. And he's 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 actually been pretty reliable. I've been pleasantly surprised by what I've seen from him. He's He's been a good player this year. But I mean, Lundy has just. He's good when things are between the tackles, but he's just not fast enough to play linebacker at this level in this era, essentially. He's he's gonna have to drop some weight and see if he can if he can get there. Otherwise, he, he's just he's a situational guy. He he can't play in space and and be effective. Teams basically just isolate him and they're able to take advantage of of his of his speed. And you know, again, that's not a knock on the guy in terms of, of the effort. He's one of the guys that does give consistent effort. He's a guy that is a thumper inside and gives you a lot in those situations. He's just not a, you know, three down linebacker who you want in coverage. And then you have Dix who just hasn't gotten there mentally in terms of processing what he needs to do within the defense and being able to trigger and be in the right spots. And if that doesn't happen, well, you know, that's that's that. He's he's a great workout guy. He's physically got all sorts of good tools, but you have to be able to trigger. And it's been similar problems with Amari Gaynor, who just is not he's playing out of position. Gaynor is playing out of position. And they I mean, Gaynor should have moved to edge before last year. And he should have moved to edge before this year. And he should have moved to edge a week ago. And he should move to edge next week. To me, you are better with Amari Gaynor at the edge and basically use him as one of the backups for, as, as the primary backup for, for, uh, for Jermaine Johnson. And I think 
uh, and and use him in, in your pass rush packages. He's just a lot better when he's moving forward than he is when you get him in space and when you're asking him to process, uh, you know, whole gap responsibility in in the uh, in the inside linebacker position and trigger downhill and do all of that. It's just not natural to him. Some guys are more natural there than others, and he's not as natural there. To me, Gainer needs to be playing edge, and I think this defense would be uh, would be better with that uh, with that overall. And I think that what we've seen so far this year is how much this defense misses Emmett Rice. I mean, I think this defense would look very different with Emmett Rice playing. You could basically put Rice and Deloach out there at the inside linebacker positions and feel pretty good and be able to cover reasonably well, be able to handle some things that that defenses or that offenses are taking advantage of. They'd be able to handle a lot of those things with that pair out there. And then you'd be free to have a guy like Gaynor playing more edge. But to me, in the offseason this year, I would strongly consider having Gaynor put on another 10 pounds and put him in, putting him at the edge and have him be a guy that rotates in and and basically produces pressure on the quarterback and tries to set the edge. Uh, he just fits better there to me, and uh, he's kind of wasting away at that inside backer position. But the fact is that they're going to need to get some talent at the linebacker position to be able to to be able to uh, make that kind of move. And they went to a lot of dime type packages against Syracuse with one backer on the field to minimize how much those backers could hurt them. Basically they'd have the Loach as the only backer or, you know, sometimes Gainer as the only backer to, uh, to minimize how much they could get hurt there. And they're going to have to keep doing that, but uh, they're going to one one other thing is that the glaring lack of athleticism was, uh, was glaring <laughs> when the backups were in uh, the, the starters on this defense, when you have your starting defensive line, Deloach and Gaynor at, at linebacker, Jay and uh, and Dent and, say, Knowles out there. That's a pretty athletic defense. That Those guys can run. They're, you know, they look the part. Once you, get pat, once you get to the group behind them, you can really see the difference athletically. It's just they're, they're not there. And they just desperately need a talent infusion from this next recruiting class. I mean, it's so critical that they get some of these guys on campus and, you know, they're going to need to add some linebackers to this group. I mean, the, the, the Byzanth kid, uh, Graham, Martin, Willis, some of these guys in the, in, in recruiting. And we'll talk more about that in the bye week These are guys that they need because they've got to get some natural linebackers on campus and they need to land the edge guys. I mean, they need to land, uh, Nigelic Kelly, they need to land Marvin Jones Jr. desperately because both guys might be starters next year on the defense. I mean, you look at this, they could plausibly start four or five freshmen on defense next year based on the talent that they're bringing in and the overall lack of talent on the roster, which is a yikes because you, you know, it's the old saying of for every freshman you start, you just add a loss. But that's where they're at. They could start four or five freshmen on defense next year without blinking. And they need the corners to stick, obviously. I mean, they're completely much better. They're, they're way better this year if they've got Hunter out there at corner. Now, this is where Miami and LSU struggling this year is great news for Florida State. So this brings me to kind of how I'm thinking about this season moving forward. To me, from this point forward, given the situation 
of how they started, of the injury situation and all of those things. This season is a success if they can basically avoid getting utterly embarrassed, getting blown out against better teams. So the closer you can keep it against Clemson and UF, for example, the better. And find a way to beat Miami. Obviously, you beat UConn, or obviously you beat U, uh, UMass. But find a way to beat Miami. And this is a succeed. This is a successful season in all sorts of ways, just because of what that does recruiting wise, in terms of signaling that Miami is is further into their 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 coaching transition, and Florida State basically comes in and says, mm, "Yeah, Miami's not only not back; they're not going to get back. We're at our bottom, and they still can't beat us in this case. We're still managing to to do that. You beat Miami." And I think that goes a long way towards uh, certain recruiting messages that you can send. And again, if uh, if LSU continues to struggle, that that really helps. I mean, you get guys like Jacoby uh, Jacoby Matthews Matthews from uh, the, the safety from from Louisiana, four star. He's a guy that again could step in and be in the rotation immediately. You put him and Hunter and a couple other a couple other guys on that defense, and all of a sudden. Yeah, you're going to have some busts. You're going to have some blow, blown assignments at different points, especially early in the year. But your talent threshold, your your floor in terms of what you're putting out there is way better right away. So, you know, again, find success against Miami. Beat Miami. Let LSU keep struggling. Pull a couple of these key key recruiting prospects somehow managed to land Kelly and Jones and, and Jones Jr. And, you know, you're you're in better position for next year. The, now, the rest of this year is really, it's just survival. It's it's improving in spots where you can actually build on, that you can build on for next year. Can you get guys like a Demory Tate actually developing in practice? Can you get that happening? Can 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 you take a step forward with some of the guys that are going to need to be able to play next year? And can you, can you beat Miami and can you, uh, can you prepare forward? And I would be trying to set some tendency breakers uh, in place for that Miami game as early as, as now, knowing how important that game's going to be. And the rest of the way out of this, you've just got to recruit your way out. That that's, that's where they're at. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap there on this part of the podcast, but I've got a few question and answer things that came in uh, that have come in over the last couple of weeks. And I'm going to go ahead and, and take care of these this week. Now, I want to do a full, I'm going to do a full blown Q&A episode or two during the bye week. So if you've got any questions or anything that you want me to discuss, please let me know uh, through Patreon. You can, uh, that's, I'll definitely pay attention to anything that comes in through there. And then, uh, you know, that gets first priority. And then, um, and then social media stuff, you can, you can get a hold of me there for anything you might want discussed. But uh, but we're going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and go through some Q&A's that have come in and then uh, that'll wrap the show. This Q&A brought to you by Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You can find her at ShenRealEstate.com. Best in the business in the research triangle. Let her know you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. First question is, how or why do most of the kids that Florida State has been recruiting not live up to expectations at Florida State? Other schools were vying for their pledges. Do they develop better elsewhere? Is it bad luck? Are we cursed? That's a good question. 
So first of all, I think the primary thing here is that it it is about a lack of stability. When you have a when you have players that are that are coming in, you've got to bring in talent. But talent is only part of the equation because it's one thing to be a talented 18-year-old or 17-year-old playing a senior year of high school and you can you've got a lot of potential. But as Bobby Bowden used to say, potential means you ain't done nothing yet. And in order to transition from talent to skill, from talent to being actually good at what you're doing at the college level, that requires development. And in order to have development, you have to have a clear vision and a clear thing towards which you are developing. <laughs> so development presumes, it requires that there is something that is being developed toward. And when you have a lot of transition in a program, when you have, in certain cases, before multiple head coaches have come through the program, you have you know too many cooks in a kitchen kind of situation, or you have misaligned vision, that can impact the kind of thing that you get in development. If you have someone who is not pulling the same direction as everybody else, that impacts development. All of these sorts of things you need to have. Now, Florida State in recent years has been a program in turmoil. And that goes back to the last years of the Jimbo Fisher regime, for sure. This is a situation where you had, at the end of the Fisher regime, a head coach who was essentially embittered because of a constant pull, a constant tug of war with administration who he believed were effectively sabotaging his ability to keep up with the other elites in college football. He felt like he needed to go out and basically hold their feet to the fire and threaten to leave in order to get anything paid into the program because you had a lot of old guard people who looked at the Bowden era and said, well, look, we won with less there. Why can't we keep doing it? What is it about you constantly demanding more upgrades here and more facilities there? And I need my coach. I need to pay, pay this coach more this time. And all, all of these things. Why is it that all of this money needs to be poured in now when we were able to win on the cheap before? And he basically felt like this was a group of people that were out of touch with reality, out of touch with the changes in college football and a variety of other things. Plus you had other personal factors involved, not only in the life of the head coach, but also in other, other uh, situations as well. So by the end of that, you wind up with a, a situation where that head coach has a few assistant coaches on that, on his staff that he really didn't want on his staff at that point, but at least two coaches he had wanted to replace and had not been given the green light to do so. And then there were others that he actually wanted to keep that others in the administration or in the booster org or whatever wanted out of there. And so this was a, a program that there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of parts that were just not fitting together very well at that point. And, uh, and, and so those last, that last year in particular, there was not a, not as much development as is necessary to continue to towards being the kind of program that they were in those years under under Jimbo Fisher. And you have to remember, even that final year where they they ended up uh, going seven and six in the um, in the uh, again. Yeah, not all of those wins. Those two of those wins are on Odell. So they were five and six before before he left. But they went seven and six that year and they finished in the top 10 in SP plus. 
that was still a good football team. They just lost a lot of games on the margin as happens with young teams with a freshman quarterback and all that, but they had improved over the course of the year, but they hadn't developed adequately to really push forward beyond that in ways that, that, that you'd like to see. And then you enter the next coaching staff and you have a wholesale transition to an entirely different vision. And the other thing is that this coaching staff initially was so happy to be at Florida state that they didn't initially press for some of the things that they needed to press for right away. And there was some serious buyer's remorse on that coaching staff because they, I remember going down there the, the spring before their second year and having one of the assistant coaches tell me, you know, Jimbo was right about this place and proceeded to tell me that he'd spent some time talking on the phone with, with Fisher not long before and that they'd talked about a variety of different things and he had more knowledge of certain things now that they'd been there a year and all this, but that it was a much harder situation than what they'd realized they were getting into initially and, and so on. And they were not prepared for all those things coming in. And I think that much is obvious. And, and that was a problem from the top down within the program, but it was also a problem with the administration above. Ascend, again, you didn't have everybody pulling in the same direction. And you say, well, how does this impact you know, the, the talent on the field? I mean, you still got four and five stars running around out there. Yes, but again, talent requires development. And what was not happening in all of this time was the kind of development that was necessary. And again, I, I, I do think that there's a lot of blame to be put on the on that that particular staff for how they failed to handle good uh, to to put thing put players in the best positions in practice to develop them in whatever direction they needed to go in terms of program discipline in terms of basically the the practices moved pretty slowly and and didn't have sufficient reps for guys to get better there was not the demand on on a lot of things so a lot of different things in that. But again, you had a transition where you're going from one vision to another. And basically that transition, it's sort of like moving, you know, those of you who've moved for work or for school or whatever, it takes you like nine months to a year to just kind of get set resettled in a new place so that you can actually get into the life rhythm to be productive the way that you were before you moved. What's well, like that with a new program? It takes a year basically for the new coaching staff just to get in, in place and to get their vision, to start to implement their vision and to be able to start developing guys in the direction that they want. So that's a full year that, you know, they're, they're learning their roster, they're gaining trust, they're doing all those things in that first year, ideally, but you're going to take a step back just because of the transition. Now, hopefully that second year, you can really make up some of the losses for the transition. But then they got fired in that second year, and now you're starting that process over, and you have another transition period, and another coaching staff coming in, and now you have another lack of development that happens in that process, and now we're in year two of that after a COVID season where there was no development for anybody in the country, basically. So that's where we are. And that's without even considering the transition classes that mean that you're not getting as much talent as what you're used to. And some of the more highly rated guys in those classes that are coming in in transition class are either guys who just dreamed of being at Florida State forever, or they're guys who, well, maybe they weren't wanted by some of the real elites that would ordinarily want them. Yeah, they're being recruited by, by some, but maybe they're not 
quite as highly regarded by some of the elites that you're normally recruiting against because there's some additional baggage or some additional red flags or questions that those guys are coming in with, which means that they need extra attention and extra development. And you're putting them into a situation where there's less of that. And that's even without considering other kinds of transition when you have coordinators and system changes and all of that. When you are an offensive lineman, if you have multiple offensive line coaches that teach you multiple ways, and yeah, there are certain fundamentals that should be the same across the board, but you have different drills, you have different ways of doing certain things. Every time you go through a change, that's a transition. And every time you have a new voice, that's that's additional. You're basically starting over. And when you start over in a new offense or a new defense, it's like being a freshman all over again. Now you ha- you're a little bit at an advantage because, you know, it's like knowing one language, you, the second language is going to be harder to learn. But once you know that second language, another language in that language family can be a lot easier to learn, but you're still learning a new language and you're still learning how to, how to do all of these things without that stability with, with new coaching players go through multiple freshman seasons over and over and over again. Every time you get a new coordinator, you're basically going through your freshman season again. You're slowed down. You're having to think about what your assignments are. You never get past thinking to reacting. And then you get a new system the next year. And you're again, right back to thinking rather than reacting. And then all of that impacts buy-in in the off season. When you have new strength and conditioning, you have all sorts of things. Essentially, if you want players to live up to expectations based on recruiting, you have to have stability in your program from the top down that sets a clear vision that has everybody pulling in the same direction, has the resources necessary to support development, and then holds guys accountable to live to that clear vision. And it's a clear vision that stays the same year after year so that those guys are built into a specific developmental model. That's what you have to have. That is the opposite of what Florida State has had since about 2014, 2015. Now that leads us to the next question. And this is from Nick said, want to get your take or your position on the following. I believe the incompetence at the athletic director position, president and influential boosters is what created this mess. Do you agree? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) If you go back to the later years of the Fisher regime, I was one of the few voices. I mean, you had some voices that were very, adamant some of the some of the most prominent voices in covering florida state athletics were ready to see fisher move on there were a lot of people who were of the belief that florida state was in such a position that a lot of different coaches could come in and really do well and i remember actually hearing people in the media talking about and this is before fisher ever even resigned. I mean, this is during the 2016 season saying, you know, Fisher's been good and all here, but you know, I think a guy like Willie Taggart could really kill it at Florida state. I mean, he'd just kill it in recruiting in the state of Florida and, you know, runs a more modern offense. And, you know, this would be, it'd just be, man, Florida state would just be so much better off that way. I mean, people were ready to push Fisher out the door and hire a guy like Taggart right away. And this is well before, Taggart was, you know, officially on the radar in that regard before Fish, before Fisher had uh, had resigned. And I'm I was one of those voices. I was one of the few voices, as I recall, 
that was saying, be careful what you wish for. Florida State's got a top coach. This is a guy who understands how to build a program, how to set a vision, how to run a big program, and he's got a national championship for a reason. Things are not exactly where they need to be, but what you have to do is give him basically what he wants in terms of the uh, the facilities and give him the blank check to hire the assistants that he actually wants. Let him rebuild the assistant coaching situation, reestablish the program in the direction that he goes, and and you'll be in better shape. You do not want to roll the dice, bring in somebody else in. Be careful what you wish for. The grass is not always greener. But Florida State went the other direction. And I think this was gross mismanagement. And one of the reasons that Fisher left was because of the utter incompetence at the athletic director position and also really fractured ties. I mean, it wasn't even ties at the point by the time he left, just fractured relationships with the top boosters. And, you know, the, the president was basically, the, he was basically only going to the president, to Thrasher, and that really just didn't, it, it didn't work. The Thrasher ultimately backed the AD and Fisher walked. If there had been a competent AD in, in place who understood football, who understood the landscape in college football, I think Florida State's still in the top five or top 10 right now. And ultimately, they decided to make some decisions from, from fighting Fisher on a lot of the things that he wanted over those last few years to uh, essentially l letting him walk and then making a bad hire after that, that... I think that is exactly what created this mess. Yes, I agree. Now, there was a second part of this. Nick then added, also, I wanted to get your take on where I am in the minority among the FSU faithful that Lane Kiffin being hired three years ago would have been a home run. He has Ole Miss rolling right now despite COVID excuses others use and was very successful at FAU after his Bama stint. All that money FSU has spent and wasted the last four years could have been invested in his staff with proven assistance. And I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you here, Nick, because I am definitely not in that minority. For me, Lane Kiffin is not only a no, but an expletive no. Do I think the guy can win? Is he a really good offensive mind? Yes, this, this is all true. Is he also a ticking time bomb? Also true. And ultimately, while I think Kiffin is one of the one of the best offensive minds in college football and certainly colorful, to me, he fails the Butch Jones test, the Butch Jones rule, which is, would I trust this guy to, to run my company if it weren't, if it had nothing to do with football? If I were running a Fortune 500 company, would I hire this guy to be my CEO? Would I trust him to run my company? And I don't think, I mean, if you're going to be honest about that, is are you going to say that about Kiffin? I mean, his reputation in the coaching industry is as a ticking time bomb, as someone who's who you don't really want to work for. Now, he's managed to, to do well at, at Ole Miss so far, no doubt. But one of the things you have to remember here is that he walked into a loaded quarterback room with John Reese Plumley and Matt Corral. I mean, he, he walked in to a first round draft pick in the quarterback room. They had, they had talent on that roster and they had been well coached offensively when he walked in the door. Do you really think he would have had the same kind of success with DeAndre Francois and James Blackman as he's had with, 
as he had that initial year with splitting some time with Plumlee and Corral and then Corral since then. I mean, it's just a completely different ball game in terms of the, the level of talent on the roster at that most important position in team sports. He walked into a good quarterback position, quarterback room, and he's been able to, to use that. That puts him in a totally different situation. And he, they, they were decent up front too. So a decent offensive line, some weapons at wide receiver and a first round quarterback that he walks into. He's not walking into that at Florida State. He doesn't have any of that. And I just don't see that kind of initial success at Florida State because of the lack of the pieces to be able to do any of that stuff. So, you know, I look, the guy's been successful at Ole Miss with a first round quarterback and with some of those, uh, some of the things that he's been able to do. But I think at that position, Florida State could do a lot better. And I think actually they have a guy that can do a lot better at the, at the current, as the current head coach. I would take Mike Norvell over Lane Kiffin, despite the fact that Kiffin has Ole Miss rolling right now. To be totally honest, I would hire Kendall Bryles long before I would hire Lane Kiffin. And I feel the same way about Hugh Freeze. Keep Hugh Freeze as far away from my program as possible. After all the misdeeds that he had and all the and, and basically the way that he left his previous program, I don't want that happening at my program. And you can't convince me that, oh, all, everything's changed. No, that guy's in the right place. He, he, after all those misdeeds and everything, he went to Liberty where they seem to have some more tolerance for such things. So he's in the right place. Let him stay there. And to be honest, I think Kiffin also is in more of the right kind of place for him. I mean, ask yourself this, and this is something that, that I think Florida State should also be asking themselves before making these kinds of hires. Is this a guy that Alabama would hire to replace Nick Saban with Nick Saban's blessing? If the answer is no, then Florida State needs to be considering that maybe they need to go a different direction. And I can tell you this, Lane Kiffin would not get the Alabama job after Nick Saban leaves. Nick Saban it would have to be long dead for that to be <laughs> to, to be tolerated. Kiffin's ultimately in a better place for 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 him in that he's in a place that has never had any problems going 150 miles an hour in a in a 60 mile an hour speed limit zone and he can kind of be the uh the gadfly he can be the the renegade up and comer who's fighting against the system and trying to get back at his mentor who wasn't really his mentor uh in Saban that's basically what what he can what he can turn into so to me no that's a no i i i'm not i'm not sold on that i do think if they had hired somebody like Norvell immediately after Fisher that especially given a lot of the similarities between Norvell's offense and Fisher's in terms of the foundational structural stuff, which a lot of people, I mean, you look at, they don't look as similar to the, to the naked eye as what they are under the hood. But I think he could have succeeded with the right assistant uh, group. I mean, if he'd come from Memphis when they hired Taggart, he would have brought Dan Lanning with him. Who's now the, the DC at, at, at Georgia. And I think Mike Norvell with Dan Lanning that year would have been a great hire. But again, that's 
hindsight is is really hard. I just don't think that uh, Lane Kiffin would be good in either hindsight or foresight at Florida State for for the long haul. I think Florida State needs to set their sights higher than that. In the Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at UnconqueredPodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.